Back there. Good evening. Thanks for being here. I'm Harvey Perlman, Chancellor of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Honored to welcome you to the opening lecture of the 2013-2014 season of the E.N. Thompson Forum on World Issues. For more than 20 years, the university has partnered with the Cooper Foundation and the LEED Center of Performing Arts to bring to Lincoln thoughtful speakers to engage both the University of Nebraska community and the general public in important issues that affect all of us in this contemporary world. This lecture series is named in honor of the late E.N. Jack Thompson. Few individuals were as supportive of the university as Jack. We're grateful to the Thompson family and the Cooper Foundation for its ongoing support. This evening's lecture is also the annual Lewis E. Harris Lecture on Public Policy and is co-sponsored with the College of Business Administration. The Harris Lecture on Public Policy was created to examine major public policy issues and to provide a special opportunity for interaction between students, the business community, and the academic community in Nebraska. The Harris Lecture was endowed by the Smith-Klein Corporation in honor of its former chairman, the late Lewis E. Harris, founder of Harris Laboratories, one of the world's leading independent scientific testing and research laboratories. We are indebted to the Harris family for their continuing support for the lecture series. Tonight, we have the honor to hear from Mr. David Wessel. He is the economics editor for the Wall Street Journal and writes the Capital Column, a weekly look at the economy and forces shaping living standards around the world. His book, In Fed We Trust, Ben Bernanke's War on the Great Panic, was a New York Times notable book in 2009. He has shared two Pulitzer Prizes, one for a series on the persistence of racism in Boston, published in the Boston Globe in 1983, and the other for a series on corporate wrongdoing, published in the Wall Street Journal in 2002. He frequently appears on the National Public Radio and WETA's Washington Week. A 1975 graduate of Haverford College, he is also the co-author of Prosperity, a 1998 book on the American middle class, and was a Knight Baghot Fellow in Business and Economics Journalism at Columbia University in 1980-81. In 2009, he was awarded an honorary doctorate in Humane Letters by Eureka College. Tonight's lecture is titled On Capital and the Capital. Please welcome Mr. David Wessel. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. A bit overwhelming to be on this stage. I was afraid someone was going to tell me that I'm actually supposed to sing opera in a ballroom like this, uh, but it's your good fortune that I'm, you're not going to hear my, my singing voice. Um, I'm afraid I come here tonight with a little bit of bad news. Uh, I'm sure that here in Lincoln, Nebraska, things in Washington look pretty messed up. Well, I'm here to tell you that if you work in Washington and see it up close, it looks even worse. And that's a kind of disturbing message to come out here to tell. I told a group of students earlier that it was nice to come to a place, though, that had a football team with a winning season. I, uh, the Washington Redskins are 0-3 and three so far, and our star quarterback seems to be not such a star. 
Uh, so I, I kind of like the idea of coming to a place where it's three and one, and I noticed that you didn't show any mercy with South Dakota the other day. Um, but I, I'm in the business, basically, of telling stories. I think that humanity from way back when, from the days when people were hunting and taking the meat home to the caves, have long communicated through stories, have inspired their children through stories, have drawn inspiration from stories that their grandfathers and grandmothers told them. And so I look at myself as kind of a, uh, a modern storyteller, and fortunately for you, I don't have to do it in 140 characters tonight. Um, although I'm, I'm learning, you can say a lot in 140 characters. Um, and what I want to talk about a little bit is to tell you a story about the American economy in the last five years. And I hope you appreciate what an extraordinary five years it has been. We are living in the yet-to-be-written pages of the economic textbooks that will be written a decade from now. What has gone on in the last five years is both unprecedented and to a large extent was unpredicted. It was a surprise. About the only thing that all the economists in the world agreed on, uh, and you know they don't tend to agree on very much, uh, was that we would never have to confront the threat of another Great Depression because we were so smart, we the economists, so smart that we'd figured that out. Yet, <clears throat> five years ago, almost to the day, we were staring into the abyss of something that looked uncomfortably like Great Depression 2.0. As you may remember, at the beginning of 2008, uh, we had discovered that housing prices don't always go up. That was actually a revelation. We had thought and we had been told by people as wise, or at least seeming to be as wise, as Alan Greenspan, that sure, housing prices in one community might go down, but across the United States, the entire United States, housing prices wouldn't go down. And we learned in 2008 that an entire house of cards, house of financial cards, had been built on the assumption that house prices won't fall, and they did. And it pulled down the whole house of cards. Bear Stearns, an investment bank, had a shotgun wedding to J.P. Morgan with the taxpayers of the United States putting $29 billion at risk. The Federal Reserve used powers to lend to almost anybody in circumstances that it deems unusual and exigent, those are the, the, the words of the law, that they hadn't used since the Great Depression. And the government nationalized Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in August 2008. And in September 2008, Lehman Brothers went into bankruptcy, sending shockwaves across the globe. And AIG, the biggest insurance company in the world, was effectively taken over by the taxpayers. Money market mutual funds, those dollar a share funds, were unable to meet the withdrawal demands of their people. And what followed was the closest brush we've had with the Great Depression since the big day itself in 1929. Um, and so on one hand, you can say, my gosh, how did we get to a point where we could make so many bad decisions that so many people 
could make so many bad decisions. The regulators could mix so much. The risk management committees of the banks could have been more risk and little management. The financial press, the rating agencies could have been so blind or to the extent that any of them saw anything didn't shout long enough. And you can, people will be asking these questions for 10, 20, 50 years. The same way they ask how did we have the Great Depression or why did we have the Civil War. But on the other hand, there's a, you can take some encouragement that things were done, unpopular things, and we didn't have another Great Depression. Ben Bernanke, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, who had, uh, by complete coincidence, had been a student of the Great Depression, didn't repeat the mistakes that his predecessors had made. He cut interest rates. He flooded the markets with credit. The, the Congress, with a little bit of hesitation, actually more than a little, put $700 billion into the bank at risk into the banking system to keep the economy going. And we avoided what might have been. Now, one of my favorite people in Washington, uh, unfortunately he's left Congress, is Barney Frank, the chairman of the House Financial Services Committee. This isn't a political point. This is, if you're a journalist and cover this stuff, there's nobody who has more good lines than Barney Frank. And we miss him. Uh, Barney Frank once said to a hearing of economists, I envy you guys. You have available to you the counterfactual. You can say that if this didn't happen, then that wouldn't have happened. That doesn't work for politicians. Nobody ever got reelected with a bumper sticker that read, it would have been worse if not for me. <laughs> um, but that's basically what Ben Bernanke and Hank Paulson and Tim Geithner and can have to say. It would have been worse. It could have been worse. And we do have a little bit of advantage now with the benefit of hindsight. It could have been worse. We could have been Europe. I mean, in Spain, the unemployment rate is over 26%. And Spain isn't the weakest link in Europe. And so if you look back five years later, and you look where we are today, what do you see? Well, the stock market is at new highs. The banks are definitely stronger than they were. They've been forced, cajoled, depending on which bank you're talking about, to raise more capital, to have stronger footings so that they're better able to withstand another financial tsunami. Uh, we have changed some of the rules that stood in the way in 2008. Uh, we haven't tested them, but we now have rules in place that allow laws in place that allow the government to take over a Lehman Brothers or an AIG in a somewhat more orderly fashion, although hopefully we won't have to test that because I'm not convinced they actually could do it, but at least they have the power. Uh, the auto industry, which will prove to be the most expensive bailout in the end, you know, all the money we put into the banks has come back. Some banks still have money, but the banks that have put their money, have brought their money, have paid back their money, have more than covered the banks that haven't paid back. The government is out of AIG at a profit. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the mortgage giants, are making money again, making so much money that some people are rethinking whether we should reform them all. Um, the, the most expensive part of the bailout will be the auto industry. But put the whole thing together and the Congressional Budget Office tells us of that original $700 billion, much of which was never spent, the net cost of the taxpayer, they estimate, will be $21 billion. Now that's a lot of money, but it's a lot less than we thought at this point in 2008. So should we celebrate? 
Well, maybe a little bit, but what about Main Street? Now, I hope you appreciate the good fortune that you have here in Nebraska. The unemployment rate in Nebraska, as I understand it, is 4.2%. It will never get that low in much of the rest of the country. Unemployment nationally is 7.3%. What does that mean? That means that there are more than 11 million Americans who are out of work and still say they're looking. And it means that 3 million of them, 3 million, have been looking for work for a full year or more and, and are still looking and can't find it. The median income of American households, the income of the household at the statistical middle of the middle in 2012 was 8% below where it was in 2007 and is lower than it was in 1999. Wages are not going up. So on one hand, Wall Street is doing better, the banks are stronger, and the rest of the economy is still struggling to recover. We've had growth for four years now, but the per-person output of the United States has only recently returned to the 2007 peak. One in six American households with a mortgage still has a loan that's bigger than the value of the house. One in six, that's a lot of people. So I consider the job incomplete. We avoided a second Great Depression. That is a good thing. We have rebuilt our financial system, and that is a good thing. And we have not brought Main Street back to where it was, and we have not put it on a stronger course. And I think that explains a whole lot of why there's so much antipathy towards Washington, so much suspicion towards the banks. I mean, they're getting their bonuses, and my kid is graduating from college, and can't get a job and has moved back with me and I can't refinance my mortgage. And by the way, the company's cutting back on my 401k. So when Ben Bernanke says he sat on a park bench in Dillon, North, South Carolina, where he grew up, outside where his dad and his uncle used to run a drugstore, and he was lucky because it was on Main Street, it would have been terrible TV if it had said Wall Street. You know, a lot of towns have Wall Street, little town. He sat there and told an interviewer for 60 minutes, I did not set out to save Wall Street. I set out to save Main Street. In order to save Main Street, I had to save Wall Street. I think that is a true statement of his intent. It's about twice as long as the attention span of the Amer average American, and people don't believe him. And you know what? We should be angry. We should be angry that too many of the people on Wall Street have forgotten that they got bailed out, that the entire financial system of the United States was about to tumble over the cliff and they were bailed out by the taxpayers of the United States. And we should be angry that they're paying bonuses again on Wall Street and ordinary workers are not getting a raise. And we should be angry that our Congress is spending valuable time today arguing over that great question, should we keep the government open from till November 15th or should we keep them over open till December 15th? That's literally what they're debating in the Congress of the United States today. And we should be angry that they're doing that instead of thinking about why isn't the median income going up? Why are so many homeowners still underwater? And so one of the questions to ask is, well, why didn't we get a better result? I can tell you why we didn't get a worse result. 
because the taxpayers and the Federal Reserve ran, ran to the rescue, and because we turned out to have a pretty resilient economy. But why didn't we have a better result? And I think there are at least three answers. One is, it turns out that financial crises are like a chronic disease. It's not like you have an acute attack of some infectious disease that give you antibiotics and after a couple days you're up walking around. It's not like acute appendicitis. It's more like coronary artery disease. It takes a long time before you get to feel like yourself again. And you have to take care of yourself if you want to be as strong as you were before and if not at risk. So we have been working through this chronic disease. And we've done some things that have made things better. I, I like the chronic disease metaphor because you may remember Tim Geithner's great inspiration and when he took over as the Treasury was to tell us he was going to put all the banks through a stress test. I had this image he was going to put Citibank on a treadmill and run them until they passed out and it would go under. Um, it actually was a pretty successful strategy in the end. So we're still like the cardiac patient. So that's one thing. Second thing is, let's face it, we had some bad luck. I mean, who would have thought that our recovery from the financial crisis would have coincided with Europe's uh, uh, sovereign debt crisis and Europe's doubt about whether it wanted to continue to have uh, a common currency? And who could have predicted a tsunami that wiped out a Japanese nuclear plant, have a meltdown, and disrupted the supply chains? And frankly, who would have expected that in August 2011, the Congress of the United States for the first time would lead Wall Street to believe that maybe they wouldn't raise the debt ceiling in time to prevent the government from running out of cash. So we had some bad luck. Uh, the third thing is we had less than the best possible economic policy. What happened was the Fed put the, its pedal to the floor and has been doing everything it can to try and get the economy moving faster. But it turns out there's a limit to what you can do. They've had interest rates at zero since 2008, and they're going to be at zero for another couple of years. That's an example of something that was not in any textbook. They've printed $3 trillion to buy bonds. That's also not in the textbook. And they've kept the economy from slowing, but it's growing at a painfully slow rate. And every year they begin the year and say, this is going to be the year that things are better in the second half. And every year about this time, they, they said, as Ben Bernanke did the other day, we were overly optimistic. But frankly, they haven't been getting very much help from Congress and the president. So I wrote a book about the federal budget and the deficit. And I believe it's a problem. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But right now, the deficit is not a problem. In fact, the deficit is probably coming down too fast. The government is pulling out of the economy, shrinking its spending, raising taxes faster than the private sector can expand. And so we have this bizarre situation where the Fed is putting its foot on the gas pedal all the way to the floor, and as you saw recently, is reluctant to even lift it up a little bit. And the Congress is basically, A, tapping on the brakes, which is poorly timed, and B, creating unbelievable amounts of uncertainty about what the future looks like. And Ben Bernanke and other people have told Congress, you guys got this exactly backwards. This is not the time to be doing sharp cuts in spending, and certainly not the time to be doing mindless sharp cuts in spending across the board. This is the time to be nurturing, nourishing the economy, 
with the help that government provides, because we learned in the Great Depression, when government doesn't provide help, bad things happen. But at the same time, dealing with the really severe and dangerous long-term deficit problem, the one that will haunt our kids and our grandchildren unless we do something about it. So if you look at what's happening in Congress right now, they are having a wonderful, entertaining episode of the fiscal follies. They are literally, as I said, the, the federal fiscal year ends on September 30th. It be, a new one begins on October 1st. And they haven't agreed to appropriate the money to keep it going. But it's important to remember that what they're talking about is about one-third of federal spending. The money that goes to buy paper clips for the IRS, to pay soldiers in Afghanistan, to keep the air traffic control system working, the stuff that's appropriated annually, the stuff that is a shrinking share of the budget and a shrinking share of the economy. And they're not talking about the two-thirds of federal spending that goes out the door every year, every year, without a vote of Congress. Uh, we're talking about the benefits, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, veterans, farm price supports, and of course, interest on the federal debt. And it's that spending that is growing faster than our revenues. So if you drew a line, you would show one line, the annually appropriated spending, gradually coming down, and another line, healthcare, Social Security interest going up. All the yammering in Washington is about that declining line. And none of it is about the real long-term fiscal problems of the country. Now, this is a pretty serious problem because we have been lulled into a kind of complacency about the deficit. We have had the good fortune to be able to borrow incredible sums of money from abroad at extraordinarily low interest rates. You know, uh, my dad bought a house in 1956 and he had a four and a quarter percent mortgage. And I remember when I bought my first house, I think I was, it was during the uh, high interest rates of the 1980s, I had a double digit mortgage. And I thought I would never, never have a four and a quarter percent mortgage. Well, I refinanced at 3.75%, right? So we are at this bizarre moment where we have a government that is clearly in disarray, has no business plan to prevent us from becoming the world's largest subprime borrower, yet it's able to borrow money. The 10-year treasury is at something like 2.7%, 2.8%, historically low rates. So you have to ask yourself, well, two questions. One is obvious. No wonder there's no pressure for them to do anything on the budget. I mean, with, if the people are willing to lend you money, it's hard to tighten your belt. And you can tell all the stories you want, and I've done my share about how we're, we're endangering our kids' future, but right now, I have to make a decision if I'm a congressman. Do I cut Medicare and Social Security and raise taxes a little more and put my reelection at risk? Or do I kick the can down the road a while and let someone else worry about it, and a surprising number of them are opting for the second. But why is it that we can borrow so much money so cheaply? What's that all about? And I think the answer is pretty simple. You're in China. You're sitting on $3 trillion of reserves. And you have to invest that. And you say to your deputy, I'm all worried about those clowns in Washington. I mean, they don't seem to be kind of serious about getting their act together. I think we should put our money somewhere else. And so your assistant comes back and says, okay, boss, here's the choices. 
We have a lot of money, so most of the markets in the world are too small for us. And we can buy up some farmland in the Ukraine and buy some oil production fields in Nigeria and stuff like that. But for our financial investments, what are our choices? Japan? Japan's a shrinking society, a declining population. Uh, they're kind of rolling the dice now to see if they, they get their economy going, and part of their strategy is to cheapen their currency, make the yen worth less every year. So that doesn't seem like a great bet for the Chinese. Europe? Europe, as I said earlier, they can't even decide if they still want to have a currency. I mean, for all the discord and polarization in the United States, most Americans, with the exception of a few people in northeastern Colorado and a few people in Texas, still want to use the U.S. dollar as their currency. <laughs> and so the Chinese and the others in Asia who have a lot of money, they don't have any choice but to lend it to us. The United States is the world's tallest midget. Now, if that could go on forever, if we could count on being able to borrow money at 2.7% forever, everything would be fine. But there's a problem. One, we can't. I mean, maybe it'll go on for another five years, maybe it'll go on for another 10 years, but it's not gonna go on forever. The Chinese people, who despite their remarkable growth are poorer than we are, are not gonna continue to deny themselves a rising standard of living so they can put their money at the bank where thanks to their government they get hardly any interest so the government can send it back to us so we can have low cost mortgages. That's not a good long run strategy. But the second problem is that our debt is growing faster than our economy. And that's an arithmetic recipe for disaster. And let me, I, I've thought a lot about how to talk about this, what story to tell about why that can't go on. I mean, after all, we had, we've had deficits, we had trillion dollar deficits for four years during the worst of the re uh, recession and nothing seemed to be going wrong. But here's one way to think about it. Today, the federal government spends 6% of the budget on interest. That's a lot of money, $220 billion. $220 billion a year in interest, about half of which is paid overseas to foreigners, particularly in Asia. President Obama's budget says that if the economy performs as well as he hopes over the next decade, and presidents of the United States, no matter what party, always thinks the economy is going to do great over the next decade, and if Congress took every one of his suggestions for spending and taxes, which has zero chance of happening, but even if they did, interest will account for 14% of all federal spending in 2023. We are at risk of having a government that has some aircraft carriers and drones, runs a giant health and retirement fund, mainly for old people, and pays interest to our creditors, half of whom are overseas. And everything else will get squeezed out. And that everything else is absolutely everything that might be considered an investment in our future. Education, medical research, infrastructure, uh, broadband, uh, uh, subsidies, anything that you think that might make the economy better for our kids and our grandchildren, that's what's getting squeezed. And that's what they're doing right now. All of the venom 
that the Republicans have on government and the size of government has been concentrated on this one-third of federal spending. Now, believe me, some of that stuff is unnecessary, and the president made a huge mistake by telling us that the world would end if we had the sequester. Because we had the sequester, the across-the-board spending cuts, and most people who didn't work for the federal government didn't notice. I've often thought that he made a, like, a serious political mistake, and that what he should have done is found a way to concentrate all the spending cuts on the airport security guys, so the line would have been, you know, interminable to get a plane. Because if there's one thing that motivates members of Congress, it's waiting in line for planes. It's not an accident that, that, that the, the air traffic controllers were quickly exempted from the sequester. So uh, there is a lot of wasteful spending there, and, and there probably is some belt tightening that's taken place because of this attempt to control government spending. But it's not addressing what, where the real spending problems are, particularly in healthcare. In 1960, 10% of the federal spending went to healthcare. That's before Medicare and Medicaid were signed into law by Lyndon Johnson. Today it's 25%. In 10 years, the Congressional Budget Office tells us it'll be 33%. And that's even with the slowdown in healthcare costs and even with the changes that Congress has put in place, some on Obamacare and some on deficit reduction programs. So we, 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 we are going through this charade in Washington dealing with something which isn't the problem in order to create a lot of noise so we don't, because they don't want to deal with the problem. And it's incredibly depressing. I mean, Today, you probably didn't know this, but today is the 96th anniversary of the original debt ceiling. In 1917, the federal government was borrowing a lot of money to finance World War I. And until this point, Congress had to approve every single bond issue that the Treasury did. But to make things easier, so they thought, they put a limit on federal borrowing. And then they allowed the Treasury more flexibility about when to borrow and how much at two years and how much at five years and so forth. Um, but that debt ceiling has become a kind of convenient lever for one party to use against the party of the president. This is a bipartisan sin. Barack Obama voted against raising the debt ceiling when George Bush was president. Um, but we have now gotten to the point where they are using the debt ceiling not to force changes in economic policy that are related to debt and deficits, but basically to score points against the president. So the move to attach to the debt ceiling some provisions that would defund or defer Obamacare, which will never get through Congress, are just a way to stick it to President Obama. And you can have your views, and I suspect a few of you do, on the Keystone Pipeline. I was thinking of taking a vote here on the Keystone Pipeline, but. I was told it might not, it might be divisive, so I decided not to do it. Um, but, you know, the Republicans are thinking of attaching the Keystone Pipeline, forcing presidential approval of the Keystone Pipeline to the debt ceiling, right? So that's just, that's just a stunt. Uh, that's not dealing with rising healthcare costs. That's not dealing with a patent system that isn't equipped for the 21st century. That's not dealing with how do we make our K through 12 schools better so that our kids are better able to compete with the Chinese. That's not dealing with the fact that we have made promises to pay benefits for, the, for decades to come that are greater than the taxes that the current tax code brings in. So they aren't dealing with any of the real problems. And I, 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 
uh, as you can tell, it's starting to make me angry. Uh, you know, every once in a while I remember, I'm angry, you know, I say you ought to do something about this, and I remember, I, I'm lucky, I work for the Wall Street Journal, I can write a column. So I let some of it out in my column, and I feel better for a day, but it doesn't seem to have any influence on Congress. So I thought I'd come out here and talk to you. And there's a reason for that. I'll get to that at the end. So but let, I want to ask for a moment um, before we turn to questions, and I think you'll have cards, and I hope you'll have some questions, because I really do enjoy answering them. So what's wrong here? I mean, the people we elect to Congress are, for the most part, not idiots. There's a few. Um, and they're not bad people for the most part, there's a few. And not all of them have sold out to campaign contributions, uh, although some have. So, and the president, you know, he seems like a smart guy, well-intentioned, can certainly give a great speech. Um, so how did we get to this point? What's wrong? What's broken in Washington? Why does it look so bad? Now, the first thing I always say is like, oh, watch it. Everybody always thinks things are worse now than they were in the good old days. And so I recall that there were some pretty bad old days in Washington. Um, uh, you know, in the, in the end of the 18th century when our founders, who we now revere for being these wonderfully thoughtful people who wrote things like the Federalist Paper, they were busy buying newspapers to accuse the other guy of adultery and having duels. Uh, I, I told the class this morning that, you know, remember Alexander Hamilton, he died in a duel. We haven't had one of those lately in Washington, although I understand that Fox News is trying to sponsor one. Because <laughs> they figured we'd get good ratings. Um, uh, and right now, you could probably get a good duel going with a bunch of Republicans if Ted Cruz was the other, on the other side, particularly if they didn't give him a gun. <laughs> um, but uh, so what's, what, 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 what is going on here? Well, one thing is that we're complacent. Uh, the fact is that we got through this crisis. Uh, crises have a way of forcing people to compromise and do things they feel uncomfortable with. The crisis is eased. So we're complacent, but we're settling for something far less than we deserve. We deserve lower than 7.3% unemployment. We deserve median income rising, not falling. We deserve a country where kids who graduate from college can have a hope of getting a job that pays them enough to pay off their student loans. And we can have that. So we shouldn't settle for this, but the air of crisis has dissipated, which is what allows them to have these political theater on Obamacare and the Keystone Pipeline instead of doing something serious. The second thing is that Congress, in a way, reflects the polarization of the American people. You know, we're pretty widely divided. I mean, some things have really changed. I mean, it's remarkable uh, how attitudes about gay marriage have changed in, in less than a generation. But on a lot of issues, we're kind of evenly divided, and the Congress reflects that polarization. And in our, the way we live now, we tend to live more than we did with people who have similar incomes and similar political beliefs. We may live more closely with people of different races and ethnicities than we did in 1950, but our congressional districts are much more homogeneous. And when people disagree about something very strongly and they fight to a draw, you get these really close elections, like the ones we've had, and it's hard to move on a compromise. Now, it's particularly hard to move on a compromise when both parties in Congress think compromise is a dirty word. And so we have 
found ourselves with a very strange evolution of our political system. We've kind of got the worst of a, a presidential system and a parliamentary system. You know, in a parliamentary system, one party wins, the prime minister has a program, the legislature passes it, and if they don't pass it, they have another election. We have a different system set up by our founders with a, a divided government, and it requires some common purpose and compromise. It was designed to force compromise. And it isn't working, and we have either party has enough votes, particularly in the Senate, to stop the other party from getting its way. So they fought themselves to a draw. So part of it is structural, and it'll pass, and we'll figure something out. I mean, it was really interesting that they, the Senate practically had a meltdown before they found a way to have confirmation votes on appointees. Uh, that, you know, it was a big controversy in Washington that, uh, that uh, a number of senators would stop someone coming for a vote. Not vote against them, but stop a vote from coming up. So we have that structural problem. Then we have, I think, uh, an unfortunate situation with the way we draw congressional districts. The art and science of drawing congressional districts has made most members of Congress safe bets for re-election. If they're worried, they're worried about a primary challenge. Democrats from the left, Republicans much more from the right. So they don't have to move to the center. They don't have to compromise in order to get reelected. So they don't. And in some respects, we have a bit of a mismatch between the two parties. The Democratic Party is now more, you might call it, a presidential party. They are looking to get to have positions that appeal to the most number of people so they can win the most number of votes, particularly in presidential elections. The Republicans, in contrast, are a little more like a congressional party. Each member is more interested in winning re-election than in doing things that would make it easy for the Republicans to win back the, pre the White House. And you can see that dynamic uh, clearly now in two respects. Uh, you have a number of Republicans, Karl Rove, for instance, Judd Gregg, the former senator from New Hampshire who's now a Wall Street lobbyist. Um, they think the Republicans are nuts to be doing this showdown over the debt ceiling and closing the government. Judd Gregg called it playing Russian roulette with a bullet in every chamber, which is a metaphor I love. I intend to use over and over again. Um, so, but if you're an individual member of Congress and you're worried about being primaried by a Tea Party guy on your right or a woman on your right, this may be a logical thing. 204, 204 of the members of the House were reelected by more than 10 percentage points and 140 of them were re-elected by a margin of more than 20 percentage points. They aren't looking to win votes from independents and Democrats. They have enough Republicans in their district to guarantee their re-election unless they get a primary challenge. So that structure has led Congress to be polarized. I think it's a really interesting experiment in California where they've changed the redistricting. It's done by an uh, independent commission, not by the legislature anymore, and where uh, they don't have partisan primaries. So you can end up with two Democrats or two Republicans running against each other if they're the two biggest vote getters in the primary. That may someday begin to change some of this unhealthy dynamic, I think, which has led the Congress to be, to be blunt, dysfunctional, right? It's to the point where no matter what your politics, whether you're liberal or conservative, you should be angry and disgusted that Congress can't do business.
as you can tell, I am. And there's two other elements to this. One is leadership. Now, I'm kind of jaded about complaining about the lack of leadership. I imagine that some Wall Street Journal reporter gave a speech here in 1953 and complained about the lack of leadership in Washington. Um, so I'm, I'm quite cognizant of that. But I think we are missing some of those unusual people who can kind of stand above the fray, blow the whistle, and say, okay, everybody done fighting? Can, let's get together in my office and let's figure out how to make this work. Uh, there were giants in the Senate, uh, some Republicans, some Democrat. Uh, people like Bob Dole, people like George Mitchell, Dan Rostenkowski, Robert Packwood, Teddy Kennedy, who did deals with Orrin Hatch, of all people. People who sort of had that personal charisma. You know them in your life, in your sports team, or your business. The people who somehow everybody wants to follow, and who'll go walk the plank because that, I know he, that, that woman or man is correct, and I know that that person would do it for me. They don't, we don't seem to have that kind of leadership. And frankly, I've been disappointed that Barack Obama hasn't been that kind of leader either. He doesn't seem to have the capacity that Bill Clinton or Ronald Reagan did to speak to us as a people, tell us we have problems, paint a picture of how it could be better, and say, everybody follow me. I mean, he gives a great speech, but then you turn around and there's no one following him. So, and then that comes to the last point, and, and I'm at the end, so write those questions. It's your fault and mine. This is a democracy. And there's something weird about a country in which the polls tell us that only 10% of the people have confidence in Congress. We in, the, we in journalism love these polls because no matter how bad the mistrust of the media, we're always ahead of Congress. <laughs> so 10% of the people say they have some or a great deal of confidence in Congress, yet we keep reelecting these people. So what is that all about? And I think, people ask me often, when will this change? When will we get some more rational policy making in Washington? When will we deal with a long-term deficit? When will we decide what to do about climate change? When will we do something about our education system so our kids can compete with the Chinese and the Indians? And there are three options. One is a crisis. I hope we don't have one, we might. Anybody who predicts a crisis is probably right Ask them to put a date on it, though, because no one knows when it's going to come. I don't know what it is. Second thing, we could have an outbreak of leadership. I don't know whether that's more or less likely than a crisis, but I'm not putting a lot of my IRA on that outcome. But the third thing is us, you know, that people just get angry enough to vote for people who do something, anything, to get the country going in the right direction. So. I've been hard on Washington here, and I'm, I, I, it, I'm telling you, as I said at the beginning, it looks worse up close. It really does. But I remember every day that this is a resilient country, and this is the world's largest and oldest democracy, and we can change this stuff if we want to. It won't be easy, and there's a hundred obstacles in the way, but in the end, it's on us. And it's mostly on those of you out there who are students at the University of Nebraska. You know, I'm 60 years old, 59, but close enough, 60. Um, and I am 
alarmed at the state of our economy and the state of our politics. And I am really worried about the next decade. But I have this incredibly strong faith in the future of America. And there's only one reason. I got two kids in their 20s, and they and their friends are smarter and more energetic and more committed than my generation was, and no one told them that they couldn't fix it. So I am enormously confident about the future of this country, but it's up to us to make sure that we claim that. Thank you very much. If you have questions, and I hope you do, uh, please get a card from one of the ushers, uh, write your question quickly and give it back to the ushers and uh, they will be brought over so that we can uh, ask those questions. Uh, in the meantime, let me start with a question that comes from uh, one of the students in the Thompson Learning Community. The United States is one of the few countries with a debt ceiling. Why are we so concerned about a debt ceiling when other countries are spending a larger percentage of their income as interest. How do we see the debt ceiling as, uh, I can't even read the word here. I got the gist of it. Uh, uh, the question is good enough. All right, so the debt ceiling, as I said, is a historical accident. It comes from this attempt to make, the, uh, make it easier for the Treasury to borrow. And it has been contentious in the past. Uh, if you ever want to, I was going to say if you want to have a fun, but I realize that this is going to sound even nerdier than I am. If you, if you Google um, YouTube Everett Dirksen and the debt ceiling, there's this great like minute and a half TV thing that Everett Dirksen does. He was the Republican leader of the Senate uh, 100 years ago. And uh, uh, he was definitely not made for TV, you know, um, but he talks about the debt ceiling is it, and it's just a riot and, and it's, it's, it's worth the a minute and a half. It's probably not worth two and a half minutes. Um, so it's, 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 it's stupid. It's like saying I bought all this stuff at the store and I charge it to my credit card. But now I get the bill and I say, well, the bill adds up to $1,200, but I want to set a limit at $1,100. It's the, the, debt, the debt of the United States is the result of bills passed by Congress to spend money in excess of the revenue of the tax code that they wrote. So there is no reason to have a debt ceiling, and for some time, Congress kind of winked and nodded and raised it when necessary. And it's not even a problem, frankly, to have a rising debt. As long as the debt rises more slowly than the overall economy, we can do okay. Uh, but it's a, it's a lever. It's a lever for the party in Congress that is not the one of the presidents to force him to do things he doesn't want. And that was kind of the game in Washington until 2011 when people start to worry, what if they actually don't do it? And if they don't do it, the government runs out of cash. And if the government runs out of cash, sometime between the end of the middle of October and the end of November, they won't have enough money to pay Social Security, Medicare interest on the debt. It was a big payment due on November 1st. I wouldn't worry about it too much. They're going to do it. They're going to raise in time. There's going to be a lot of drama. But it's a complete distraction. If they were using it to actually get better policy, I might feel OK about it, but they're not. 
A second question from another student. Uh, could a large government intervention in the economy involving large amounts of research and development funding and infrastructure expansion uh, serve us better than current economic policies? Uh, maybe. Uh, I'm a little nervous about this large government intervention thing. Uh, I mean, Larry Summers, uh, who is still a smart guy, even if he won't be chairman of the Federal Reserve, he, he he's, uh, said once that government makes a lousy venture capitalist, and I think he's right about that. But uh, he also makes the point that interest rates are low and extremely low. We have a lot of unemployed people. This is the time when we ought to borrow a ton of money and do every infrastructure project that we wanted to do for the next 25 years and start it now. And if the original... Gee, I thought this was a red state. <laughs> I guess this is a blue island in a red state. Um, uh, and uh, if the original Obama stimulus had been structured better, we would now be getting this kind of slow acting, slow spending out infrastructure spending. Uh, so I think it, it would be better, but it's not going to happen. Uh, the first question from the audience, uh, is growing economic disparity a cause or an effect of recent policy? I suspect they mean I think, growing income. Right, no, I got it. Um, we have had for some time a growing gap between winners and losers in our economy. And it's getting to kind of frightening proportions. Uh, I don't think it's a result of policy. I think it's a result of a lot of forces in the economy about people with education getting more and more money because their skills are highly prized. People who have the luxury of working in the global labor market and have demand for their services being uh, have, uh, around the world, whether you're you know, a musician or a baseball player, you know, you can get more money. The way that technology has made it uh, huge benefits to being the best in your field. You know, the number one or the number two baseball player on a team makes a lot more than the number 10 or the number 20 baseball player d does. That, that gap is widened. So I think the role of policy is to decide how much do we want to use government, the tax code and other things, to restrain the market forces that are widening the gap between winners and losers. Uh, we can do it by taking money from the rich people. We can do it by boosting people at the bottom. Um, and, we, and, and so I think it's, and it's a good political debate to have. It's one of those debates that's really about political choices of the best kind, and we ought to be having it, and the Republicans and Democrats disagree on that. Uh, what would provide Wall Street with incentives to revitalize Main Street? Uh, well, <clears throat> so I think that the, 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 the base, one, I hear from a lot of bankers that they actually want to make loans and they're having trouble finding good credits who want to borrow. And I think what they're saying is the economy is not very good. So there are a lot of people who I don't want to lend to because I'm not sure they can pay me back and we can't have ran that experiment in the mid late 2000s and it turns out if you're a banker and you lend money to people who can't pay you back, it doesn't end well. And the other thing is that there's a lack of confidence among business and consumers. 
there's plenty of auto loans going on, but there's a reluctance of businesses, I think, a kind of hesitation. And so I think the one thing that would make the biggest difference, if the economy were stronger, I think they would lend more. Now, some bankers will tell you that the regulators are all over them and all the Dodd-Frank rules are making things miserable, and I'm not too sympathetic with that thing. I think the regulators probably are making their lives miserable, and I think we've screwed up regulation. We have far too many regulators. You know, we ended up with just as many regulators after Dodd-Frank as before. But the notion that bankers won't lend because we've decided that they need to have more capital, I think, is a lousy excuse. So I don't think they need much more incentive. Might be better for them to lend if interest rates were higher, and we'll get to that point sometime. I think the most important thing, if there were more demand, more people working, more the economy were growing faster, I think you'd find banks more willing to lend. Uh, please comment on the effect of zero interest rates on the ability of retirement plans, insurance companies, and savers to meet their commitments. Right. Uh, is there another crisis looming? Could be. So on balance, interest rates are zero because there are more winners than losers from that policy. That the economy would be weaker if the Fed raised interest rates to 5% on Friday. But there are undoubtedly a lot of pressures that are created. If you're living on a fixed income, if you put your money in CDs, you're not doing very well. If you have your money in a 401k and it's in the stock market and the bond market, you probably are benefiting from this. If you're an insurance company and you have trying to match your long-term uh, promises with the short-term uh, need to invest the money, you have a big problem. So there are a lot of distortions in the economy that come from having interest rates at zero for five years now and probably another couple of years. The Fed's judgment, and I think they're right about this, is the benefits outweigh the costs. But that's not very much comfort if you're in that cost side of the equation. Is there any truth to the Republican allegation that the Affordable Care Act will ruin our economy and take away people's jobs? <laughs> um, so, uh, the Affordable Care Act is a Rube Goldberg set of conflicting incentives and structures. Uh, it was supposed to be a little less Rube Goldberg, but to bore you with a little bit of legislative detail, the Senate was, the, the House passed a health care bill, and then it went to the Senate. And the idea was the Senate was going to pass a different health care bill, and it was going to have it's going to a conference of the House of the Senate. And on these big pieces of legislation, that conference committee is really important because that's where they fix all the things that they didn't do right, or at least some of them. Because um, the Democrats lost a seat in Massachusetts, Scott Brown won that seat in Massachusetts, they basically had to pass a half-baked piece of legislation. So a good part of the Affordable Care Act problem is it wasn't even what they, it wasn't even as good as what the Democrats wanted, and that what they wanted may have been a problem. Do I think it's going to ruin our economy? No. Do I think it's going to cost some people jobs? It may, there's certainly great incentives for employers to stay at 50 employees or less and to have more part-time people. I think that's a perverse incentive. It's one of the things that might be changed if Congress would deal with changing the Affordable Care Act rather than making it into a, you're for it, so I'm against it confrontation. But I think it's basically a, gig a, gig a gigantic experiment. 
It's an experiment to think about, is there a better way to organize our healthcare system? And I think there are some parts of it that if they work, we may look back on this and say, you know, that wasn't as bad an idea as we thought. Healthcare exchanges where companies compete for your business to buy health insurance, and it's transparent and it's a regulated market, that may be a better solution than having your employer asking you every year to pay more and more of the healthcare bill. Uh, in Medicare Part D, the prescription drug benefit, which you may remember when that went into effect, everybody said it was going to be a disaster and, oh my God, these elderly people weren't going to be able to shop for insurance on the internet and it was crazy. You ever hear anybody complain about that now? No, because it works. And it turns out the competition there kept the price down, kept it lower than had been anticipated. So I think the key to Obamacare is do these exchanges I can't remember what the one in Nebraska is called, get up and running and do they succeed? If they're a series of disasters, and there's a chance they will be, we'll revisit the whole thing, and you may not like what comes next any better than Obamacare. If corporate CEOs and boards are evaluated and rewarded primarily on return to shareholders, even at the expense of workers, why or how should American workers ever again expect to be paid a living wage? Well, first of all, one of the problems we had during the crisis is that whatever the incentives were, they weren't serving the shareholders either. I mean, if you were a shareholder of Lehman Brothers or Bear Stearns, you didn't think this was such a great deal. Um, so they were taking risks that were not even in the interests of their shareholders. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, look, business pays workers what it has to pay them to get good people. Right now, many employers can pay, don't have to give raises because there's so many people lined up outside their window. So what will make business pay people more? Two things, less unemployment, so there's the demand and supply thing is more in the worker's advantage. And secondly, a better qualified workforce so that they get more productivity out of their workers in order to be able to justify paying higher wages than they pay in China. We can pay more than China, but if we're going to pay 10 times what the Chinese worker makes, we have to be 10 times as productive. And the third thing is there is a role for policy here. I mean. Unions, like them or not, played a strong role in giving workers more bargaining power. And unions have basically evaporated in the private sector. And with that has come less bargaining power for workers. And that's a fact of life. And I don't think it's going to change. Um, but that explains one reason why companies sometimes get away with paying less than they would have otherwise. What impact? did lowering of the U.S. credit rating have on recovery efforts? Zero. I mean, Moody's and Standard & Poor's, these guys who were so smart that they stepped AAA ratings on subprime mortgages that had no chance of being paid back, have lost their credibility. We, the problem the United States have is not a credit rating problem. The problem the United States has is a credit problem. We are borrowing a lot of money, we're not investing enough in the future, and we are on an unsustainable path. 
And I worry about that. I don't spend 15 minutes worrying about the credit rating agencies. I can't believe anybody still listens to them. Uh, will I feel there, strongly about this one. Will there be a government shutdown on October 1st? In your view, is one party in Congress being more reasonable than the other in the budget debt ceiling debate? This is a leading question. I should make the person who asked it stand up and tell me who he or she voted for. Um, so, you know, it's really dangerous as a reporter to make predictions about something that might happen next week. I mean, I'm happy to give you predictions about what's going to happen 10 years from now. Um, so, uh, my best guess is no shutdown. That the Republican leadership in Congress believes, as is the conventional wisdom, that the 94-95 shutdowns hurt Republicans more than Democrats. So, if you look at what's going on in the Senate in the last 24 hours, uh, Mitch McConnell has said to Ted Cruz, you can talk all you want, but Republicans are going to vote to give the 60 votes to cut you off. And Harry Reid has basically said, I want a shorter continuing resolution, that is, keep the government going until November 15th. I'd rather ruin Thanksgiving than ruin Christmas, I guess. Um, <laughs> but he's willing to do it, if you listen carefully to what he said, at the low level of spending that the House wants. So my guess is the Senate passes something, it goes back to the House. John Boehner has a tough call. He may have to pass it with Democratic votes to, to offset the Republicans' vote against it. So I'd say more likely than not, we don't have a shutdown, but I could be wrong about that. Um, I think there's a lot of irresponsibility in Congress in both parties. Uh, so I don't want to make out like one party is to blame. But there is a wing of the Republican Party in the House which got elected on a platform of I'm angrier than you are. And that's not a very good legislative agenda. So I think they are an obstacle. They don't believe in compromise. They believe that the long game, they, they really do want to shrink the size of government, perhaps more than the American people want to do it. And they are willing to take some risks to do it. And so the guy who has the hardest job in Washington really is John Boehner. It's like being a leader of an army and you're not sure how many of your troops are going to show up for battle. So right now I'd say that contingent in the House is a bigger obstacle to getting normal things done than the Democrats at the moment. But I don't want to give the Democrats a pass. Why is the euro so high if it is in such... Uh, trouble. So the other thing that economic reporters have learned to do is not to try go too far to make it seem like you can explain the financial markets. Um, there are a couple of possibilities here. One is uh, this is all about to change and any day now the euro will sink and the dollar will soar. One is that the Europeans are running too tight a monetary policy and you know the way monetary policy affects currency rates is pretty simple. There's a supply and demand of a currency. The central bank is responsible for the supply. The Fed has printed a lot of dollars. That increases the supply. That would tend to lower the price of the currency. The European Central Bank is too stingy, and so they are not printing enough of the supply, so that price goes up. A third possibility is the markets have decided, and they could be right, that Europe will do whatever it takes to protect the euro. You have to remember that the euro is as much a political project as an economic one. 
It was the people of the World War II generation who never wanted to see Germany and France go to war again. And so in order to bind those nations together, they created a common currency, and their commitment to that is so strong that they will do what's necessary. Might hurt the Greeks. Believe me, it's painful to be a Greek. And as I said, 26% unemployment in Spain. But you know, the Spanish and the Italian are not voting to leave the euro. So I think there's a strong political commitment to that that the market must see as overwhelming the obvious economic pain of continuing to have the currency. That said, it wouldn't be a shock to me or one or two of the countries falls out at one point, Greece being the obvious first candidate, maybe Portugal. How much of the middle income stagnation have to do with NAFTA and the breaking of unions? Um, I don't think it has a lot to do with NAFTA. I think the benefits and costs of NAFTA were way over-exaggerated. Um, I think trade creates winners and losers in our economy, and it creates more winners than losers, but for the losers, it's been pretty painful. Um, I think that the middle class is in trouble because of, largely because of the bigger forces of technology and globalization that have that have eroded the wages of those people in the middle of the income distribution. The people who are not waiting on tables or holding people's hands at hospital and are not working in highly skilled, highly trained conceptual jobs like designing websites or inventing new cures for cancer. And so one of the fundamental problems we have in our economy is how do we reorganize ourselves so that we can have a rising standard of living for those people in the middle. I would be overjoyed if you heard one word of that from Congress today. To his credit, you do hear this sometimes, the president talking about that. Unions are a piece of that, but I don't think they're, they're predominant piece. What do you think about cutting welfare for poor people? Um, I think, well, first of all, you know, we did cut welfare for poor people. That was one of the things that Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton negotiated. And so, and it worked pretty well when the economy was strong and it worked pretty poorly when it didn't. I think we need better welfare programs. I think we need to create incentives for people to work. And I think we need to create incentives for businesses to hire people who may not be the world's most attractive people. But this is a rich country. And I have to tell you, I got a little bit of a problem with the members of Congress who receive personally large amounts of farm subsidies and vote for a farm bill to maintain those, and then vote to cut food stamps. I, be I have no doubt that there are people who are scamming food stamps, and there are people who are scamming welfare. But with 7.3% unemployment, and with lots of people who have not, who stopped looking for work, um, I don't think this is a country where we need to make people go hungry to make them virtuous. Let me ask a couple of questions which are related. Uh, is there a long-term solution to the continuous debt and deficit fight in Congress? Is it feasible to inflate our way out of debt? Um, is there a way out? Yes. I mean, there's been a dozen blueprints it all involves figuring out some way to slow the growth of benefit spending, particularly on healthcare, and to increase revenues 
and depending on your political tastes, more of one and less of the other. And a little tax reform that made the tax code less screwed up and more efficient would go a long way. Um, but, uh, and I think we'll get there. Um, I think, you know, one of the tragedies of the Obama-Boehner relationship is that there was a Harvard professor named Fisher who wrote a book called Getting to Yes, and it was a case study on how to negotiate. Well, I'm waiting for a person who dissects the Obama-Boehner negotiations as a case study in getting to know. I mean, they seem to be unable to find a way to get the other guy, to understand well enough the other guy's position in order to get to a compromise. So, yes, I think we'll get there. We have the luxury of time. You know, that big tax increase, like it or not, did help a little bit in reducing the deficit. And the fact that healthcare costs have slowed, perhaps temporarily, has helped some. So we have a few years where the deficit is going to be coming down, and it gives us an opportunity. The political system is the problem, and I'm not too optimistic about that. And now I forgot the other part of the question. Can we inflate out? Okay. Um, well, it's commonly thought that countries which run into big debts run big inflation so they can pay back the debts with cheaper money. And that's, that's a historical fact. I think it's a little harder for us because a lot of our debt rolls over, and we have a lot of variable rate debt, so it would be harder to do. I think it's a possibility that we'll go down that road, but I don't think it's likely. I think one of the things that's fundamentally changed, not only in the U.S. and elsewhere, but is an understanding that hyperinflation is very dangerous and corrosive. So um, Paul Volcker broke the back of inflation. Alan Greenspan finished the job. And I think there's a strong commitment at the Federal Reserve, even among the people who worry a lot about unemployment, not to let inflation get going again. And there are people who say, well, they printed all this money and we're going to get inflation. But they've been saying that for five years, and inflation is now something like 1.8% a year below the Fed's target. So I'm, I think it's a risk, but I don't think it's a very big risk. We'll end with this question. What effect is unpaid internships, uh, what effect uh, is unpaid internships having on uh, the price of labor in the United States? Well, unpaid internships seems to be diminishing the income of people who are interns. And I, <laughs> I'm very proud to say that the Wall Street Journal, and like every newspaper, we've had some belt tightening, is our policy is we may have fewer interns, but we pay them. And the reason we do that, the reason we do that is because we weren't comfortable with having internships that only the sons and daughters of rich people could take, because the other ones had to get jobs. And I think there's a bit of a strong public reaction to this business of free labor and pretending that this is training when it really isn't. And I think the needle's moving on that one. Um, I, don't think, I don't actually think interns, free labor and interns is lowering the wages of regular working people. I mean, they're not permanent. And they, but I do think it's, it's one of the great consequences of this terrible recession we had. The people who will bear the economic scars of this are to a large extent those people who had the misfortune to come of age to enter the workforce in the last couple of years. And the history of past recessions show that they get off to a slower start. It's why the few of them are moving out of their parents' houses, they're delaying marriage. And I think the internship, the free labor, is something that, that hurts their potential. Uh, I understand why people do it. I would do it too if I didn't have another option. 
but it's a bad thing, and uh, interns of the world unite. <laughs> Thank you very much. No, no. Thank you. Let, let me remind you that David Wessel will be in the lobby uh, signing books, uh, so uh, take advantage of that opportunity as you leave. Uh, and please join us for the uh, next uh, Ian Thompson uh, lecture uh, coming up in a few weeks. Thank you very much. Thank you.